Hello and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is episode 3.1, Surrounded by Small Kings. So we start this week in the great ancient city of Patliputra, at the turn of an age. Once upon the time, the city had been the seat of the Mauryan emperors. Somewhere in this city, in amongst these halls of smooth pillars, Ashoka the Great had ruled. And Sri Lankan princes had come all the way to pay homage. Greek ambassadors had come to pay tribute here. And the political, the economic, and even the moral life of generations had been shaped from this city. By the time of this series, though, all of that was half-remembered legend. Ashoka was as far removed from them as Leonardo da Vinci is from us. And in the time that we're interested in, the city probably looks vastly different than it did in Ashoka's day, because it had been gutted by outsiders in the meantime. The walls had been battered down, the buildings had been burnt, and it had been overcome by the river. The city was no longer one of the great ancient cities of ancient India. Even the kings of Pataliputra had left and had gone to another much smaller city, more suited to being their capital, because Pataliputra was now a backwater, albeit one with a heroic past. And then, sometime around the early 300s AD, after all of those years in obscurity, Pataliputra is about to become, once again, the centre of ancient India. From the historian's point of view, telling this story is a bit like telling the story of the city being born anew. The very early stories are like myths. In fact, it's very hard to tell whether they're true. But for the people of Pataliputra at this time, the view must have been equally confusing. Standing around in the marketplace, hearing the news, or looking out of the gate at the world beyond, everything must have seemed almost unrecognisable to the people of Pataliputra. The old empires which had ruled the city and all of India that they'd known when they were young, those empires had disintegrated. And in their place was a kaleidoscope of small states, all of them struggling with one another for dominance. Magas, Marundas, Barishivas, Sakas, Shakas, Kakas, Arjunayanas, Yodjas, Madrakas, Ahiras, Sanak Anjikas, Malavas, and more. And somewhere in amongst all of those small states, the Guptas were there too, silently making their debut. In fact, the Guptas are the only name on that long list that you actually need to know. Sure, at the turn of the 3rd century, all of those names, all of those kingdoms, were in with a chance of becoming the next big power in India. But we're not going to go through every one of them. That would be somewhere between bewildering and dull. And it wouldn't help answer the questions that I kind of care about. What does it look like to have a change in the age? What does it feel like to be at the hinge of history? Do you even notice? So instead of going through each of the small kingdoms one by one, I thought we'd try to make sense of things based on how they looked to the townsfolk of Pataliputra. First, we'll look at the disintegration of the old empires which had once ruled their city. And then we'll look at local politics, the petty kingdoms which had ruled the city since the empires left. And then we'll look a little bit further afield 
and we're going to introduce ourselves to three states who turn out to be major players in the story that's about to come. The snake people, the Nagas, the mountain people, the Varkartakas, and finally the protectors, the Guptas themselves. So we join the people of Pataliputra when it's getting close to 300 AD. More than a century earlier, the army of the Kushans had arrived at the gates of the city. The Kushans were foreigners. They were fierce fighters from Central Asia. They had an alien way of dressing and alien customs. And they rode fine Bactrian war horses, not native to northern India. And they'd been going down the Ganga. And every city along the Ganga had surrendered to them. Pataliputra would be no exception. The king sent out a ransom, and the Kushans absorbed the city into their empire. And ever since then, Pataliputra had remained part of the Kushan world. By the way, we tend to think of the Kushan empire as a bit of an interlude in Indian history, like a gap, a pause. Maybe that's because the Kushan empire seems so foreign. The Kushan empire was ruled by Kushans, fine young Kushan men raised in Bactria. They dressed in traditional cushion dress, they worshipped in a cushion way largely, and they thought along traditional cushion lines. The cushions never let themselves take on too much Indian culture, like other invaders had. So it can begin to feel like it's a gap in Indian kingdoms. Actually though, the cushion empire had ruled India for longer than the Mauryan empire did. But in the last few years of the rule by the empire, the people of Pataliputra might have noticed things starting to fray a little bit at the edges. First, there was an emperor who took an Indian name rather than a Kushan one. And that was an oddity for a group of people who seemed to keep themselves so separate. The emperor after that one seems to have really lost a grip on things. About that time, Kushan coins started flowing into the city. And they were strange because the coins no longer had the name of the emperor on them at all. Instead, they had the name of the local governor, who apparently now thought himself above the emperor himself. And judging by the name at least, the local governor was no longer some fine cushion lad raised in Bactria, but a local man, an Indian. In the markets of Pataliputra, thumbing these odd new coins, the people might have been forgiven for wondering what on earth was happening. And maybe they'd heard some rumours. Maybe a merchant had come down the river carrying some news of a new threat from the West. The emergence of a new Persian empire. But even if that news reached Pataliputra, it might have seemed very remote. Persia was a long way outside of India, even beyond Bactria. Maybe that's of interest to merchants, but how much could that affect the folk of the city? Well, as it turned out, it could affect it rather a lot. By the time of the next Kushan emperor, the Persian Empire had conquered Bactria. The Kushan homeland was gone. The centre of their culture and their self-confidence vanished. That source of fine young Kushan administrators had just been sliced off. The Kushan Empire had lost its head. Now here the older histories tell a simple story. The story goes like this. Without its homeland, the Kushan Empire was lost, and the Kushans were pushed out by some great new Indian power. There's a little bit of disagreement in the old histories about who the new Indian power is, but that's the way empires end, right? 
they're beaten by other empires. Now we know better. That's not how ages end, or at least it's not how this age ended. The end of the Kushan Empire was not like one great hero being beaten out by another. It was something altogether more organic. It was like a fallen log cut off from its roots, disintegrating and separating, being broken up by the mushrooms and the new shoots of the forest. Okay, maybe that's a metaphor too far. But the point is, the Kushan Empire disintegrated. And in its place were two sorts of states. Remnants and rebels. The remnants of the Kushan Empire were probably old districts of the empire where a former governor had taken the opportunity to go solo. Or else they were old vassal states of the Kushans. Isolated now, no longer woven into a larger political body, but still wielding considerable, sometimes dominating power, and still carrying on some of the traditions of the Kushan Empire. But alongside these remnant kingdoms, there were the rebels, new states, or formerly subjugated people getting revenge on their former overlords, or people from entirely outside the empire pushing in. But all of that is a little bit vague and hand-wavy. Let's get into specifics, and let's start with the rulers of Padliputra itself. We get some early hints about the rulers of Padliputra from a legend. It's a 7th century Sanskrit play called The Festival of the Full Moon. And I'll tell you who wrote it, only we don't precisely know. I mean, we've got an ancient manuscript of the play, and the manuscript has the name of the author written on it, but unfortunately some little ant has come along and eaten through most of the name. From the little bit of the name that's left, the author seems to have been a woman, and I'd guess her name might be Vijika, in which case she might have been a queen in the area. But, thanks to the ant, that's just a guess. Anyway, the Festival of the Full Moon includes a small story about Padliputra. The king of Padliputra in that time was from a dynasty whose name doesn't matter much here, and that's because the kingdom was probably a small one. We still have a few traces of the dynasty, though, far to the west. Three inscriptions marking the erection of sacred pillars, a king with three sons. Anyway, this king's from a small dynasty, and he must have had a son very late in life. Because when the king was very old, his son was still not ready to rule. So the king decided to get some insurance. He adopted a man who was in his prime of his life, just in case the king popped his clogs early whilst the son was still too young to take power. Smart move. However, the king didn't choose the adopted son wisely. The adopted son was a bad egg. He wanted power from his adopted father, and he wanted it now before that wretched stepbrother of his could grow up and inherit the throne. So the adopted son set about betraying his new father. He teamed up with the old enemy of Padliputra. Their name might strike a bell, even amongst all the cacophony of names of kingdoms at this time. It was the Lichavis. The adopted prince of Padliputra went to the Lichavis and persuaded them to back him and the Lichavis obliged, and soon a Lichavi army was marching towards the gates of Patliputra. Now history has shown that the walls of Patliputra could be broken down by a determined enemy, and so it proved once again. The Lichavis broke into the city, and in the chaos, the old king of Patliputra was killed. He must have had some good ministers though, 
Men with cool heads and quick minds, because they realised what was happening and what it meant. And they found the king's natural-born son, and they rushed him out of the city in the chaos. They took him to a quiet corner of the land, and there they hid him. When the dust settled, the adopted son ruled the city and ruled Magda, the surrounding land. And presuming that the Chavis who put him there had plenty of influence too. The people of Patliputra, though, they were not happy with this setup. They were not happy that their ruler was the sort of man who would kill his father. Actually, it wasn't just the people in the city itself, it was also the people in the surrounding country too. Everyone was upset with what was going on. A revolt struck up outside the city. And the king, the adopted son, he went out to go and deal with it. And then the people of Putri, whilst he was gone, took the chance to revolt. The king's true son chose this moment to reveal himself from his hiding place, grown up now, ready to rule. And he took his place at the head of the revolt. So it was the true king of Patliputra and the people of Patliputra together once again. And they beat down the adopted brother, the imposter. And once that had happened, the true king of Patliputra went back to the city. He took a wife and he celebrated the festival of the full moon. Well, that's the story. How much of it is true? Okay, the source is late. It's 7th century AD. And worse, because we don't know the names of the rulers of Patliputra from any other source, we're not even quite sure when the play is set. Some people think it was written about current events, events of the 7th century AD, what happened after the Gupta Empire, not the Brexit and Trump campaigns. But I think that's wrong. I think probably the story is set in the period of this episode, after the Kashanas and before the Guptas. And I'm not alone. But even if the story is set about that time, the time of this episode, it's probably not accurate in all the details. It's just a story, even if it's a good story. At least one part of the story, though, rings true. And that's the involvement of the Lichavis. Like I said, we've met the Lichavis before. In fact, they were some of the very first people we met in the very first series of this podcast. They were that invincible republic, that proto-democracy ruled by a council of 7,007 men, with such a common purpose and a common mind, and with such ferocity that it said that they couldn't be conquered except by trickery. The Lichavis and Padliputra sit facing one another. Padliputra sits on the south bank of the Ganga, and the Lichavis ruled the other side of the river. In fact, they ruled from there all the way up to the foothills of the Himalayas. In fact, the Lichavis were the reason that Patliputra had been built in the first place, centuries before. The kings of Magda had built the city as a military outpost to launch across the river and attack the mighty Lichavis. And they beat them in the end too, using trickery. Well, all these centuries later, two empires later, the Lichavis were still there on the other side of the river. And though those two empires, the Mauryans and the Kushanas, had crumbled the Lichavis were back in charge of their own affairs. We don't know, by the way, if the Lichavis were still a republic. We don't know if they were still ruled by their council of 7,007 men. Judging by the story, though, they were kingmakers. They were the local big bully. Or at least they were slightly bigger fish in a pool of otherwise equally sized fish. There's even a tiny scrap of independent evidence that the Lichavis ruled in Pataliputra about this time. 
there's a later inscription that marks one of the Lichavi rulers around this time, probably, as being born in Patliputra. That's pretty slender evidence, to be honest. But whatever the truth, soon enough, the Lichavi people will be deeply entangled in Patliputra once again. In the closing years of the 3rd century, though, the rules of Pataliputra were probably the Marundas. And this isn't yet another name to remember, but it's still a curious name. Because in fact, it's not really a name at all. It's a title. And it's not even an especially grand title. It's not like emperor or king. It's something more like chief. The other thing to know about the name Marunda is that it's not even an Indian word. It's a Shaka word. It's the language of one of the peoples who invaded India in times gone past. In fact, it's probably just the title of a position in the old Kushan administration. We know it's the title that a mid-level Kushan administrator have. The other job he had was being a treasurer, which kind of gives you an idea of the sort of rank it was. So, it was as if Patliputra was being ruled by someone calling themselves Deputy Chief Minister, or something like that. These Murunda kings are probably a remnant of the Kushan Empire. Perhaps they were the local governor made good, still ruling in roughly a Kushan way, with a shabbier version of Kushan culture and politics, perhaps. Just like the old Kushan rulers, the Marundas were foreigners, barbarians, Mlechas. That's nothing new to the people of Patliputra, of course. They've been ruled by Mlechas more often than not for the past few centuries. And the Marundas were no longer part of an empire, but they were still plugged into the wider world. They still kept some of the ties and importance of the old Kushan empire they'd once been a part of. To the west, way to the west, Greek geographers mentioned them and named six important cities down the Gunga, which they owned. To the east, they sent an embassy all the way to Cambodia, and Cambodia sent an embassy back, in fact an embassy headed by one of their royal family. Cambodia wanted these fine Bactrian horses, which people in the old Kushan Empire had. So the Burunda sent the Cambodian embassy back, with a gift of four fine Yuchi Bactrian horses. So it might seem that, at least in Patliputra, things were running pretty much like they had for years under the old Kushan Empire. So much for the lords of Patliputra itself. When the people of Patliputra looked beyond their land, they'd have seen that mass of states, but three of them would come to shape the fate of their city in the decades to come. We've named them already. The Snake People, the Nagas, the Mountain People, the Varkartikas, and the Guptas. We're going to look at each in turn. Starting with the Nagas. The term Naga might be a bit familiar, even if you know nothing about Indian history or Indian culture, because Naga appears in Western culture from time to time. Though, for some reason, Naga's always attached to some overdramatic villain. It's the name of a Sith Lord from Star Wars, and in Marvel Comics as an evil serpent man. So, it looks like in Hollywood, or the relating entertainment industry, Naga is a bad or a scary thing. But that wasn't the way it was in ancient India, or really in modern India for that matter. Naga in Sanskrit literally just means serpent. In fact, it's said that the first Nagas were the offspring of Brahma's granddaughter, 
she gave birth to a thousand Nagas and they started to reproduce. And it got that there were so many Nagas on the earth that Brahma had to curse them to live underground and they should only come out to bite evil people or people destined to die. So now the Nagas live under the sea in a special kingdom, in palaces surrounded by gems and jewels. So the Nagas in that story are mythical beings. They're often depicted in art as having the upper body of a human and the tail of a snake. Though in the stories they were said to have the power to transform fully into a human or fully into snake form. And these mythical Nagas are said to be immortal and eternally young and very beautiful. So beautiful, in fact, that plenty of Naga is said to have enticed and married a human. And some of the heroes and heroines of the stories are said to be descended from these mythical Nagas, these Naga snake beings. These Nagas often appear right at the edge of stories, offering supernatural help or words of wisdom. For example, there's a pair of Naga kings who are said to have given Buddha his first bath. They were the guardians of the water. And you can still see them, in fact, when you enter some Buddhist temples on the entry posts, guarding the entrance. Now, of course, we aren't interested in the mythical being Nagas. We're interested in the ones who are jostling to take power after the Kushanas left. And those Nagas are definitely human. Whatever connection there was between the snake beings of legend and the Naga people of ancient India has mostly faded from view. Now, the Naga people and the Naga mythical beings have the same name, of course, but they don't seem to have any other ties. In fact, the symbol of the snake isn't used by any of the Nagas so far as we know, the Naga people. And instead they use things like peacocks as their symbol. The peacock's the natural enemy of a snake, which is a really odd symbol if everyone goes around calling you the snake people. There's a theory some historians have that the Naga people weren't actually called after the Nagas the snakes, but instead their name comes from Nunga, meaning naked, because they were a bit primitive in the early days. That's some nice guesswork. I'll leave you to decide what you think. Anyway, the Naga people were around well before the Kushan Empire collapsed. In fact, they seem to have been around since the beginning of history, and they get name-checked by history from time to time. In fact, we've name-checked them ourselves. They were the odd people who wouldn't give Ashoka the ashes of the Buddha in our episode on Sanchi. And that's a fairly typical role they have in the stories of history. The Nagas are never the heroes. They're not even major players. They're always an odd group of people on the fringes of the story. Much like their snake being namesakes, they always seem to be right on the edge of things. And on the edge of mainstream society too. The implication of the stories is that the Nagas are challenging the orthodox view of things. They've got their own funny ways. Now, over the centuries, plenty of different kingdoms and peoples were called Nagas. And in fact, there's no obvious political alliance between these different kingdoms. It's not like one kingdom is plausibly the descendant of another kingdom. The Nagas, then, don't seem to be so much a political group in ancient India. They're more of an ethnic group. Or maybe they're a certain sort of outsider unrelated to one another, but seen the same, seen as, seen as the same thing by people in mainstream society. Well, after so many centuries on the edge of history, the Nagas now have their chance to step centre stage. With the Kushan Empire collapsing, the Nagas stepped right into the power vacuum. 
and several different Naga kingdoms appeared across North India. Vidisha was under the control of a kingdom of Nagas, for example, known as the Bull Nagas, and they had the symbol of the bull on their coin. And another Naga kingdom took charge of the powerhouse of the old Kushan Empire, down in Mathura. But the biggest and the most important group of Nagas were based about 16 hard days' travel to the east of Patliputra. And there they had taken control of the great city of Padmavati. A succession of nine Naga kings had ruled there. And from Padmavati they had ruled a large territory. They had conquered land up and down the river Ganga. And they may have even come close to conquering Padliputra, way over to the east of them. After each of these conquests up and down the Ganga, the Naga people had performed a horse sacrifice. Ten horse sacrifices in all. And that's unimaginably extravagant. Making just a single horse sacrifice was far beyond most kings. And the most lavish and devout kings might make two sacrifices in their reign. That was something to boast about. The horse sacrifice was so hard to do Partly because you needed so many wild and tame animals, and you needed so much money to gather everything together. But also because you needed to have a huge army to protect the horse wherever it went. If you uh, want some more details about the horse sacrifice and what it entailed, uh, we mentioned it in an earlier episode, but actually there's a really great source. There's the History of Indian Philosophy podcast series that's part of the History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. It's done by Jonathan Ganeri and Peter Adamson, and it's fantastic. It's available on iTunes, and you can look it up on their website. I'll also put a link to it on our website. They've got a show there that talks about the horse sacrifice itself. They've also got other shows, by the way, which link into some of the stuff we're doing. So they've got a show on women, for example, which might link into one of our earlier special episodes. It's really fantastic, brilliant stuff. They're serious philosophers. Anyway, back to the Nagas. So the Nagas performed the horse sacrifice ten times. And that is just completely unprecedented. This is a show of extravagant wealth and military power unrivaled by anyone in ancient Indian history. It shows also a huge religious devotion. This group of Nagas we're talking about, they were devoted to Brahminical orthodoxy. They had Brahminical gods in their coins. They even had Shiva in their name. And the ruler of these Nagas, the king, would carry a Shiva Linga on their shoulder. By the end of the 3rd century, that ruler, the ruler of these Nagas, was a man called Bhava Naga. His kingdom now covered such a large expanse of land after all of those conquests, and his military was so feared that he dared to call himself Adi Raja, Emperor. So that's the Nagas of the ancient world. A quick point about the modern world. In modern India, in the modern state of India, there's a state called Nagaland, and that includes a bunch of tribes who call themselves Nagas, who are Nagas. Famously, some of these tribes in the past were headhunters. These modern Nagas may be only indirectly related to the ancient Nagas. The modern Nagas might have come from, or their ancestors might have come from China, Mongolia, or maybe even Malaysia, rather than being descendants of the Nagas we're interested in. The Nagas we're interested in weren't just in the east, they were scattered all across northern India. Plenty of them were as far as Kashmir. 
In fact, if you go to Kashmir, a lot of the lakes are still named after the Nagas who are said to have lived at the bottom of them. And what of the mountain people, the second group, the Vokartikas? Well, to understand their story, we have to wind back the clock a little bit and think about how things were back in the Kushan times. So you had the Kushan Empire dominating the north, but a bit further south up on the Deccan Plateau, you had two other groups vying for power. You had the Shakas, who were also foreign invaders, and you had the Satavahanas, and they had been fighting one another, these two great empires, up on the Deccan Plateau for centuries. The Satavahanas had even once, very briefly, taken charge of Patliputra itself. That's well before the Kushans took control of it. All of that was in the last series. Well, just as the Kushan Empire had disintegrated, these two empires were also beginning to disintegrate. The Satavahanas in particular had all but disappeared. Partly it was pressure from the Shakas, but that wasn't the whole story. In fact, the Shakas' kingdoms were also shrinking. Their power was also on the wane. The coins of the Shakas of this period are dug up, unused, not worn by the hands of sellers and buyers, hidden away for a rainy day perhaps in all of the political instability. It just seems like all of the big powers were disappearing. Between these three crumbling empires runs a line of hills, the Vindhya Mountains, marking the north of the river which cuts the Deccan from North India proper. And when these three great empires crumbled, the people of those mountains saw their chance. And they would go on to form a huge kingdom which would dominate that area for 250 years, bringing immense stability and also a great deal of prosperity. And these people will profoundly shape the lives of the people of Pataliputra over that time. These were, you guessed it, the Varkartikas, and we'll be hearing about them fairly often. The name Varkartika, by the way, that doesn't seem to be a Sanskrit word. Some historians used to think that the Varkartikas were Greeks. I'm not exactly sure what Greek word Varkartika is supposed to sound like. Anyway, that theory has long since been abandoned as a serious idea, and nowadays all the historians think they're not Greeks, as far as I can tell. They're just the local people living in those hills who took advantage of a gap in the political world. The Vakartikas first appear on the stage of history in a fairly humble guise. In the mid-3rd century, there's an offering by a Buddhist layman who calls himself Vakartika. He's a pilgrim, perhaps, and he's gone down to a little bit further south to make a donation of an octagonal pillar. He wasn't a king, though. He was just an ordinary householder with some spare cash. The first Vakartika king we know, he was called the Power of the Vindhyas. And that's quite a formidable name. We know that he had some glorious military victories, or at least that's what later Varkartika inscriptions tell us. We don't know when or where these, these, these victories actually were. Anyway, by the close of the 3rd century, he'd passed his power to his son. And that's someone who we do know a fair bit about. His name is Pravara Sena. He controlled so much land that it's said that the crowned heads of enemy kings embraced his feet. 
And I suppose you need quite a lot of uh, heads around your feet to count as an embrace, although the crowns might feel a little bit prickly. Anyway, I suppose the point was that Pravara Sena was a powerful man, and he went about calling himself a suitably powerful title, Samrat, which I'm also going to translate as Emperor. And the chronicles tell us that he was a very ambitious man. He inherited this huge empire, but he wanted to extend it further. He didn't have much chance of extending it northwards, north past the mountains where his people had started. Up there were the Nagas, and they were just too powerful. So instead, he turned his armies south, and especially west, where rich lands of cotton and forest fell under his power. Now, King Pravarasena, just like the Nagas, was a devotee of Brahminical orthodoxy. In fact, just like the Nagas we talked about, he was a devotee of Shiva. And, again like the Nagas, he performed the horse sacrifice. Not the absolutely incredible number of ten horse sacrifices, only the Nagas achieved that. He only managed the stupendously remarkable number of four horse sacrifices. But he made up for it by doing a huge bunch of other sacrifices and giving massive gifts to Brahmins. We know of a gift of a village for the upkeep of a community of a thousand Brahmins, which must have been a big village. And to top off all of this respect to the Brahmins, he was most likely a Brahmin himself. It's not a coincidence, by the way, that both of the major powers we've talked about were devoted to Brahminical orthodoxy. Some historians point out that at this time, there was something of a revival of Brahminical orthodoxy. Brahmins were taking power themselves. Back in the old, old days, that had been frowned upon. In one of the oldest Brahminical texts, one of the four Vedas, it said that kingship's just not suitable for Brahmins. But actually, there'd been plenty of Brahmin rulers since, people who didn't really follow that rule, and now there would be more because there was an upsurge in Brahminical orthodoxy, connected probably to the retreat of the Kushan Empire. The Kushans were still seen as foreigners, outsiders. They had connections with the Brahmins, but they still had their weird, funny own religion where they treated themselves as gods. Well, those weird foreigners, they were mostly gone now. And Brahminical orthodoxy united Indian people against the defeated foe. That's the rough tale anyway. Things must have been at least somewhat more complicated than that, partly because the Kushans had these Brahminical ties, but also because ancient India remained a patchwork of remnant and rebel states. But plenty of ancient Indians might have seen it in that way as Brahminical orthodoxy rising up to throw out the remnants of the Kushans. And we won't get into that debate further today. In amongst all of this chaos, the Nagas, the Varkatakas and their mountains, quietly, the Gupta family appears on the stage. Now, who exactly the Gupta family are is a bit of a mystery. They seem to come out of nowhere. The name Gupta means hidden or protected. And the name appears in law books around this time. Not as the name of a specific family, but the law books say that Gupta is a good name to call people from one of, the bra- one of the Varnas, one of the castes. So the law books say, look, a good name for Brahmins, the priestly caste, is shaman, meaning auspicious. And a good name for Shastras, the warrior caste, 
is varman, meaning armour. And a good name for shudras, the sort of servant class, is dasa, meaning servile. Well, a good name for vaishyas, the trading caste, is gupta, protector. So perhaps the guptas who formed the gupta empire were simply a trading family made good. But we don't know. The law book may have been written after the guptas came to power. And some historians believe that the guptas were brahmins, just like the Valkartikas we've just met. Anyway, the first gupta king was called simply Lord Gupta, Sri Gupta. And we call him a king but he didn't rule much. He probably ruled a small chunk of land around modern-day Allahabad. Allahabad sits at the point where the Ganga meets another great river, the Yamuna. And it's a beautiful place, home to a very important university. Anyway, back in the time of this episode, around 300 AD, the city was an old one. It had been actually around before history begun, but it had never been a prominent city in the grand scheme of things. And that's probably because it was too close to Kosambi, just a little way to the north, a few dozen miles away in fact, and Kosambi, that was one of the great cities of ancient India. It's been a, it'd been a powerhouse since the time of the Buddha. So Allahabad was a relatively small place, even though it had a long history, but it was nevertheless a strategically important place. It controlled the two rivers, it's right there where the two rivers meet. It held the promise of trade as far away as Rome. And it also controlled the Doab, the fertile land between the two rivers. There were loads of nutrients in those soils, and there was also a good lot of iron ore there too. So this was an economically promising place, and also a defensible place from which to launch an invasion. Sri Gupta had the makings of a foundation of a larger kingdom. With this start, Sri Gupta became wealthy and powerful. He conquered the territory downstream, pushing into Magda, the traditional territory of Patliputra. It's said that he built a temple there, in Magda, a few miles away from the great ancient university of Nalanda. And the temple was built specifically for Chinese monks who came visiting, Buddhist monks. And Sri Gupta gave this temple a massive income. He gave it all of the prophets from 24 villages. So Sri Gupta is a local warlord gaining increasing amounts of power and land and money. But he's still just a petty king, one amongst many. Lord Gupta had a son, and his son was pretty much like him, a warlord, a petty king. About him, we know almost nothing at all, nothing much more than a name. But actually, he's got a really cool name. His name means something like someone whose hairs stand on end because of pleasure, which is awesome. But the story of the Gupta Empire really starts with the son's son, Lord Gupta's grandson. He was the one who founded the empire. He was the one who became the great king of kings. And just like the Mauryan Empire before it, the Gupta Empire started with a man called Chandragupta. But that's a story for the next episode. Every week we read something from the original sources. 
just to get a sense of it, a flavour of what's actually going on. And this week, I thought we'd read something from an inscription in the Ajunta Caves. Those are the world-famous caves, and they were built by the late Varkartikas. And there's an inscription in there by the last king of the Varkartikas. But it's an inscription which tells the story of the founding of the Varkartika dynasty. And it's going to mention the two kings that we mentioned in this episode. It goes like this. Having bowed to the sage who extinguishes the rising of the three world sins, I will describe the ancient succession of kings. There was a famous twice-born man on earth named Strength of the Vindyas, whose strength increased in great battles, whose valour when he was enraged was irresistible, even by the gods, and who was mighty in fighting and in charity. He whose majesty was like that of Indra and Vishnu, who by the might of his arm conquered the whole world, became the standard of the Varkartika race. He, eclipsing in battles the sun with masses of dust raised by the hooves of his horses, making enemies, and here the inscription gets chipped away, something, 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 made them intent on salutation to him. Having subdued his enemies by accomplishing the works of the gods, he made a great effort to acquire religious merit. His son was Pravara Sena, whose lotus-like feet were kissed by the rays of jewels worn on the heads of hostile kings, and whose eyes resembled fresh-blooming blue lotuses. That's it for this week. There have been a lot of names, but there's only really three things to remember to understand the story going forward. You've got the Nagas, the snake people, the Varkartikas, the mountain people, and the Guptas, who are going to be the central figures of this series. I hope you've been enjoying the podcasts, and if you have, please consider donating to my wife's charity, the Snail Situ Memorial Fund. Details are on the website, there's a link to it in the description of the podcast. Have a great week. Take care. Thank you.